This is an ABC podcast. Now, we're going to do a little experiment. The majority of people that walk through this little stretch of land, what do you think they see? Well, at the moment, they probably see long grass and they're a bit worried about snakes, I'd imagine, uh, which is valid, but it's unlikely. But um, otherwise, they just see a patch of dry grass. Um, And what do you see? I see kangaroo grass, and there's a mixture of other grasses in there as well. There'd be some interesting invertebrates. There's some wonderful flowers with great names like chocolate lilies and um, possibly some butterflies. Um, golden everlastings and blue devils. And um, of course frogs in the wetlands, in the hollows. And lemon beauty heads. Some nice basalt rocks which is the underlying geology. And of course there's birds around but we can hear. Dotted around Victoria are grassland remnants in rail reserves, cemeteries and rocky escarpments. Small patches that offer a window onto history a landscape relatively untouched by colonisation. They're little environmental hotspots, not because we've cared for them, quite the opposite, because they've been overlooked. I'm Iyuki Akiranta, and in this earshot, I'm getting down in the grass, taking you through parklands, pristine patches, and even experimental grasslands, trying to recreate that precious remnant. Natural temperate grasslands once spread from the Yarra River in Melbourne to the South Australian border, thriving on the fertile volcanic soils of the Western Plains. But they've been in decline from the moment settlers landed and are now critically endangered. Grazing, cropping and urban sprawl has left only 1%. So how can we expand the limits of our vision to see what the grassland lovers see? listening to the botanists and you really need to get down on your knees and look carefully at it at grassland it's a small scale ecosystem your child's eye level view is what you need <laughs> so I'm going to do as Anne suggests get down to a child's eye level view and see what I can see This is Wurundjeri land. I'm looking out over knee-high grass, which is virtually treeless. It's not a dramatic landscape, but like this tiny little constellation of moths, the drama takes place at a smaller scale. Attention to detail stands in for a microscope. But as to what all these grasses are, in the 1980s, the early days with the Mary Creek um, restoration in the inner suburbs was always uh, indigenous vegetation, native vegetation to be replanted. And so as we learnt more about what was indigenous to the area, we learnt about the native grasslands and when the real stuff was being discovered further upstream, it was quite exciting. The Mary Creek was a dumping ground for Melbourne's industries a wasteland that's taken a lot of campaigning and planting by Anne McGregor and the Friends of Mary Creek to turn it into a beautiful inner-city bush corridor that snakes up to the base of the Great Dividing Range, embracing waterways, woodlands and the remaining scraps of grasslands. That's the sad thing, that there's only small patches left around 
in in the suburbs, but it's so important to, to try and keep them and protect them and manage them. At a small scale, the majesty of grasslands is a bit lost, but small is better than nothing. Vic Roads owned the land, part of uh, a freeway reservation, obviously not building the freeway, and there was a lot of community opposition to that, but this property was offered to Moreland City Council and um, the community said very strongly to the council, please buy it because it's an important piece of land for open space and for um, ecological reasons, partly because of this grassland remnant. For the moment though, only the experts and enthusiasts can see their value. It's interesting just looking here, the back fences are very solid. (laughs) There's no sign that people uh, come out onto the grasslands from their backyard or even look out onto them but the same applied along the Merry Creek further downstream in the 60s and 70s and 80s very solid back fences and the creek wasn't a place to go but nowadays um, the back fences are being opened up and I'd hope the same thing could happen here as people learn about the grasslands. Sedges have edges, rushes around. Grasses are hollowed down to the ground. So if I pull this leaf blade away, it should be hollow, yeah, hollow in the middle. I've confirmed a grass. <laughs> so that's the sheath, ligule, culm, and then the awn, and the gloom. Naming as a way of identifying or knowing is one way. The grasses also have routines, habits, preferences, like all living creatures. The Friends of Mary Creek, actually, our secretary, Ray Redford, asked uh, Wurundjeri, or the council, but an elder, uh, gave names to the major grassland patches that that are protected along the creek. Not this one as yet. We might have to get a name for this one. (laughs) Um, Maranbaba is the sort of umbrella title, so body of the mother, Maranbaba. It's the sort of spine along the Mary Creek and then um, other patches have thigh or arm or or whatever. So where would that put us at the moment, do you think? Well, we might be on the other thigh. I think we're almost... Almost opposite Central Creek, Narrijerang, on the other side of Mary Creek, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps this could be the other, other thigh. It depends on which way you're looking. Yes. Is <laughs> <laughs> she lying on her back or on her tummy? <laughs> Beautiful words, though. Sheath, ligule, sheath, ligule, awn, calm, gloom. up to meet John Del Pratt, who is one of the forefathers, pioneers of grassland restoration in Victoria and Australia. Just north of Melbourne in Royal Park, there's a grassland experiment in progress. Hello. Am I allowed to cross the red tape? So the idea was to transform the area into a complex native grassland. The, the fantastic thing about diversity in a grassland is the scale at which it occurs. In a square metre you can have 20 and 30 species 
Now that doesn't happen often these days, but we know we can now reconstruct quite complex vegetation communities from these native species. But it's still got to be demonstrated on a regular basis. People still want to call these experiments, and, and this one is genuinely an experiment. There are as many approaches to creating and caring for a grassland as there are grass species. John and his students at the University of Melbourne have worked on techniques for scalping, mulching, direct sowing, weed suppression for rural, regional and now, here, just three kilometres north of the CBD, urban applications. But the point is, these experiments, these patches, exist. So at the moment, we're standing in this uh, sward of direct sown native species and the genus we use primarily are the wallaby grasses. Common wheat grass. Probably some power in here as well. My particular favourite which is kangaroo grass. Okay pause. If you only take away one grass species today it should be kangaroo grass. And that's Themata triandra and kangaroo grass is a, a tropical species so it does best in warm hot moist conditions which doesn't exactly describe Melbourne but um, it's spread its way from the, probably from Central Asia down into Africa. So you often see it in uh, wildlife movies and that sort of waving at the nose of a lion or something. And then it's also spread down into Australia and that's probably a, a few million years ago it got to Australia. And then it's spread across a large portion of Australia right down into Tasmania. And it's a keystone species for the sort of plant community we're trying to represent by this reconstruction we're doing here. So when you're next in a grassland, what should you look for? Colour. Kangaroo grass is strikingly colourful. Bursts of red-brown spikes emerge from green stems. With this fine black tail like you've just lifted a pencil line off a page. Usually hip to knee height. It's unmissable once you've seen it. It becomes an easy beacon when navigating these complicated landscapes. But then we sow a lot of forb species, and that's, I guess, the characteristic of these uh, southeastern Australian grasslands. In their pre-1770 form, they were probably um, very rich in wildflowers, and many of those wildflowers would have been utilised by the folk at the time for food and for other purposes. So they're an important component of a remnant of these grasslands and of our reconstructions of the plant communities which are based on the idea of those grasslands. Reconstructions that acknowledge Indigenous Australians were instrumental in shaping the inviting landscape that colonial settler John Batman saw when he first arrived. A landscape that felt familiar because it had been shaped by human hands. There is now a strong belief that the grasses were cultivated, that a number of the daisies were cultivated for food and for other purposes, particularly the yam daisies. But of course they weren't cultivated in the sense that the Europeans understood and therefore probably failed to recognise in most cases. Mm -hmm. I and mean, there's a lot of talk these days about cultural burning, um, which is a term that we've got to understand much better than we probably do at the moment. But uh, it was certainly a, a tool that was used extensively on the grasslands and also by replanting uh, and possibly even deliberately increasing populations. But I mean, they had tens of thousands of years to learn how to, to uh, live off this particular land. So they're going to be doing some very sophisticated things to, to achieve that. Mm -hmm. 
but fidelity to that pre-colonial point in history is impossible. So we don't know what they look like. Even the fine artists of the time, the um, Bondurards and people like that, they didn't seem to feature painting of the force. They were basically commercial artists and they were painting homesteads and landscapes and things. And, and so if, if only he had looked down and documented what was in front of him. And, and even then, that was sort of 30 and 40 years after settlement, so it was going to have been modified. They talk of the, particularly the daisies, the Murnongs, the, the yam daisies that were so uh, important to the uh, Aboriginal people as a food source. They talk of those plants being eaten out within a decade of, um, of sheep and cattle entering the, um, the pastures. Uh, if we look just across the other corner of the lake, we can see exactly what it looked like. It looked like a uh, golf course there. Very low, closely cropped. It was uh, quite bare and there was some small patches. My name's Alan Appleby and uh, I'm the owner of uh, Melaleuca, the property on the edge of Lake Connawari. Alan is a cardiologist at the University Hospital Geelong and when not taking care of his patient's heart health, he's out weeding on a windy headland. So we're uh, about 15 kilometres out of Geelong um, and we're um, on the Bellarine Peninsula, running about five kilometres from Bass Strait, which explains the extremely strong, consistent winds that we have here. Now, wind isn't great for recording, but it is fabulous in a grassland. Weeping grass flops from one side to another. The feathery white heads of wallaby grass appear for a moment to move in unison. And wind ripples across tufts of spear grass like an ocean. Really, when we bought the property, I was blind to the grasses, completely blind. Um, I suppose it's like a logger walking into a forest and all they see is logs, but I couldn't see the beauty of the native grasses. But no, I can bring friends here and who don't know anything about grasses and one patch of weedy grasses looks just as good as the patch of beautiful kangaroo grass and stiper and uh, wallaby grass. We see grasslands as something that we can put our sheep and cattle and herbivores on to get something back from the, the land. Uh, so I suppose the next door neighbour who used to graze this probably thinks this is pretty silly, having locked up this grass for 30 years and just burn it occasionally. Uh, he probably thinks I'm a little bit mad. <laughs> Alan, accompanied by his two Jack Russells, Rocky and Bullwinkle, works as much as one person can. The property is a mosaic of native and introduced patches, burnt and weedy. You can never really recreate nature when you've... I've been to the Kimberleys and I've seen intact grasslands where the kangaroo grass is so... it's above your head and you have to walk around it, you can't walk through it, so... and, and, and seen patches of grass where there's just a... 30 or 40 or 50 different species in a square metre and um, you know we can't recreate that really. We can't bring back nature to that degree of perfection. It's, it's just not, we don't know how to do that. 
is something joyous just trumping through long grass, isn't there? There is something joyous, as long as you're not phobic of snakes. Well, you're going in front of me, so I figure you're scaring them away. Uh, they're, very, <laughs> they're very timid. The uh, copperheads, they're like the Labrador of snakes. So they really, they really just want to get out of your way. Good We're not on the menu. If you open and part the grass, you can see there's little tunnels and th there's a whole city here below the grass that we don't actually appreciate. And uh, I imagine on these piles of dead weeds that I've got stacked up that the little owls that we see and the barn owls and the tawny frog mouse, I'm sure they stand on these piles of weeds in the middle of the night and they could just swoop down and pick up the mice and, and uh, little animals that are, you know, running around in the grass after dark. Uh, the other thing about the native grasses is that they're much safer in terms of fire than, um, than some of the grasses we had here before. So when you've got um, four foot high phalaris or coxfoot, it'll have flames six or eight feet high, whereas the, the microlina, that uh, weeping grass, which we have a lot of, that is very low, it has low fuel loads and it only has a tiny flame really. So. You're kind of self-trained in how to burn, is that right? So tell me how you kind of understood and learnt about burning property here. Well, some of it was by accident because we had this fire almost 28 years ago which got out of control and then there was a huge flowering of kangaroo grass in that area and that's what alerted me that there was a lot of um, seed in the soil just waiting for the chance to yeah. come up. Uh, I can show you there a bit further along, but um, this is an area where um, there must be a residual seed bank because, uh, as I was saying before, new plants are springing out of the ground. About f five different um, native flowers have come up and, and that's what gives me a really deep joy, is when we burn an area and something that I have never planted just comes up by itself. It just, the seed was there in the soil for I don't know how long it's been there, maybe 20, 30 years, but it's decided to grow because the conditions are right and it's had that stimulation of the fire and it's come back uh, and it's going to gradually spread. Yeah. We talk a lot about planting reams of can You just keep scaring me. You've run out of food, Rocky. You thought it was a snake coming up behind you. I wasn't sure. <laughs> They said they were the Labradors of the snake world, but I didn't think they were that friendly. No. <laughs> it's very special to look at a tree that you planted 30 years ago and you can't reach around the tree and you can see that there's birds nesting in it and, and feeding amongst the grasses. So, yeah, there's that deep connection of time. I can't imagine what, you know, the indigenous people would have felt, but I can get some glimmering of that because I know every tree and where I've burnt and when I burnt it and the grasses that are planted, the trees that are planted, I know which friends have planted which trees and at night if I can't sleep I can walk through the property in my mind and I'm asleep in five minutes. So. Crisp blonde heads nod to the wind. Rye beauty and dry angles, leaning on each other for companionship, support. 
In the 70s, environmental philosophers coined the term species loneliness, the gnawing feeling that we're disconnected from the rest of creation. We still struggle with the idea that we could form a kinship with the living things around us. But we can't remove ourselves from this landscape anymore. It's reliant on us to thrive. Well, at least to maintain the form we desire of it. But I guess that's just a plant life in human presence. Uh, hot and cold burns are just too generic. Yeah. So we have a section up here about nine hectares, probably, Peter, is it? Nine, you reckon? Oh, yeah. We've, um, we've put um, kangaroo grass seed back into the ground, and so it's all establishing now. And that was always done by hand, dispersal. There's no machinery to spread the stuff or do anything like that. Even though um, fortune's been sent on that spent on that all over Australia, but um, by hand's the best way, yeah. after a while. I'm Reg Abrahams, I suppose. I'm a Gunajamara man from um, southwest Victoria. This is Wordy Yuang, nestled at the foot of the Yuyangs, Mount Macedon to the north, yeah, Karayo Bay to the south, and Melbourne, about an hour east. The property was bought by the Indigenous Land Council in um, 2001 and divested to the Watharong Aboriginal Cooperative in 2006. Uh, the past over 10 years, I think almost 11, I've been working as an Indigenous Protected Areas Project Coordinator and trying to get ranger teams and people invested in um, caring for country and get um, Aboriginal people out here learning about um, grassland management. I suppose and um, fire management, because fire is really important at the moment. Just give us a sense of where we are. We're in 60 hectares here. Probably 40 of it was um, uh, Victorian volcanic plains, grasslands, um, degraded. Um, we sort of regenerated that um, with reseeded and everything. And, and what we're going through now is old cropping land. So as we come up here, that was all cropped. So we stopped the cropping and um, we've done some burns and stuff. And, and we've probably put... I don't know, maybe a hundred bags of kangaroo, 20 kilo bags of kangaroo grass down. How many bags you reckon, Pete? Would that be? Oh, look, probably about that amount, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, we've recreated land, I suppose. Oh, look at this, Pete Wally and spear. Yeah. At the moment, we have got um, striped legless lizards here, which are critically endangered. We've got critically endangered um, golden sun moths. Oh, look at them. Beautiful. Oh, wow. We've got critically endangered, uh, is it spiny rice flower? Spiny spinescence. I call them blue bells. Pete's good. I do um, Australian names. Pete knows the, the French. <laughs> look at these. Yeah, wow. Yes. What do you call them, Pete? Blue bells, yeah? Restoring a large grassland is prohibitively expensive. So Reg and his colleague Pete are trialling a new way to draw funding into the landscape. Basically, now we're going into the food part of it. And we decided to get together and try and look at all this native grassland from a different angle, because the Aboriginals, uh, their grasslands over the whole of Australia was an economy. Um, it wasn't a conservation of... Um, it was purely an, a, a practical economy. You know about your Aboriginality, you can know about stories, you can know how to dance, but this stuff is important because it's all about food. But a lot of people don't, uh, they just 
don't know. They just walk past it and um, yeah. So we're trying to learn and replicate some of the burnings to get desirable species to, to uh, self-seed or promote themselves. This is the kangaroo grass, which they reckon is um, the bee's knees. They've got more, a lot more protein than wheat, barley and oats. Um, they are drought tolerant plants and gluten free. Little part here, that little black tail, that's an awn. But when it, when it rains, that awn actually spins around and drills the seed into the ground. It comes alive, it's just like, pretty amazing. After years of sitting in a shed or something. Yeah. But um, we, we, have other, um, we have other varieties here as well though. And um, we have got panicum growing here. I'll show you one of them here in a minute. Yeah. But um, mate, now you're gone. Where's all the wally grass, Pete? Over here. Progress is slow. Interest in native grasses and grains are coalescing into an industry, but not fast enough for Pete and Reg. It's too frustrating because they don't throw the right money or the dollars to do to do it. Um, even with that Western grass range reserve, I don't know why they haven't just handed it back over over to us. In 2010, the Victorian government put a public acquisition overlay over a 15,000 hectare patch of land to protect grasslands into the future. The Western Grassland Reserve is currently mired in purchasing problems. A recent report found that only 10% of the properties had been acquired. Wordi Yuang fell under the overlay and the Waltharong Aboriginal Cooperative asked to manage their own property for it to be released. Because then we can um, pursue funding, more funding opportunities to have workers out here managing, managing the place and trying to get this um, grass seed business up and running. Their request is still pending. See, I don't think it's green as the weeds. <laughs> oh, there's a rope around this patch of grassland. But John tells me that's to stop bikes and cars. Not humans. So let's go in. One of my great supports now and early in my grassland journey was my dear wife, Lynn. She had two rules. Well, there's three rules, in fact, because she's a bird person, so she looked up. But then once she'd finished with the birds, she then knew she had to look down. But there are two reasons to look down carefully in a grassland. <laughs> Um, and I'll only mention the plants. And her other rule was that she always walked in the opposite direction of the way I was walking, because that's how you find things out. Um, if you just walk side by side, it's fun to share knowledge and, and share experience. But so often she would find something that she didn't know what it was, but she knew she hadn't seen it before. So, um, but we had something to take home. Sometimes it'd be a weed, sometimes it'd be a native, but uh, it was always, always fun. We've been overlooking the grasslands, but maybe you'll look at one differently next time. The sound engineer for this program was Brendan O'Neill. And I know you're keen to see a photo of kangaroo grass, so head to the Earshot website and check it out. Next time on Earshot, we head back to the Black Summer bushfires. Kath Bowdler was woken up at 6am on New Year's Eve by the sound of a text. There was a bushfire 10 kilometres away from her home in Rosedale on the south coast of New South Wales. Kath and her partner Jack 
immediately enacted their fire plan, but it didn't go according to script. Join me next time to hear their story. I'm Miyuki Okiranta. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.